Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. Jesus has just finished a day of conflict in the temple. He's gone with his disciples. They've pointed out the temple to him and said, because he said that these things are going to be done in. All the worship and all the instruments of that worship, including the the temple itself, are going to be done in. They point to it and say, really? And so Jesus takes them across and he speaks to them of what lies ahead. And that's what we're reading together this morning. Verse 3. Now, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But these things, all these things, are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. The word of the Lord. Please stand with me and raise your hands to God and let's ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we need your word today. We need it. We need it. Our homes need it. Our lives need it. Our church needs it. Our nation needs it, Father. Add your power to your word. May it not be the mere words of men. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Jesus is warning his disciples of things that lie ahead, of what they have to look forward to and what their followers will have to look forward to. His disciples come to him, having heard him say that the temple is going to be destroyed, and they confuse the destruction of the temple with the end of times and the inauguration of his great kingdom when he returns with glory to bring about the kingdom of God that will be eternal. And so they say, when will these things happen and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answers and speaks to them a series of, as I divide it, 12 warnings. You could divide it into 13 or 11 probably, but I divide it into 12 warnings within those warnings or 
those, those statements of what lie ahead, there are also three warnings given as a result of those warnings, okay? So we're, we're getting a little meta here. There's the warnings and then there's the warnings based on the warnings. And uh, the warnings, the first type, are the ones, this is going to happen. The second type of warning is the, the warning that goes, see to it then that you, in the face of these things happening, do not, or thus and so. And so we have warnings within warnings, and the, the, the first type, there's, there's a dozen of them. They are, um, as I divide them, many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ and will deceive many. Uh, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, number three. You could, you could add that to two and have it as one. In various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, and that's different than wars and rumors of wars and nations and kingdoms rising. So that's number four. And then in the midst of that general suffering that Jesus has spoken of, there becomes a, a focus. Jesus focuses on personal suffering, not worldwide, but specifically for his followers, and that's 5 through 12. They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because you bear the name of Christ. Many will fall away. Many will betray one another. Many will hate one another. Each of these is, is different, but in its own way, part of the whole. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many, and because lawlessness will be multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. And so this is the dozen warnings that we have here. They are warnings from Christ. They are warnings that, that I think any true reader of the Bible and any true commenter on the Word of God or preacher on the Word of God is going to say are warnings that do apply to us, that they are not the, the, the Christ's equivalent of a snipe hunt. How many of you have been on a snipe hunt? A few of you. I'm gonna I'm gonna do all of you younger people a favor and tell you what a snipe hunt is. It, it, it's uh, uh, what? It's bogus. It's like a crock. It's it's a joke. Okay, you go to camp. They say, okay, kids, tonight we're gonna we're gonna hunt the wild beast, the terrifying, terrible snipe. All right. And you all get excited. We're going to go on a snipe hunt. Wear your boots. Bring your swords. We're going out for a big game. We're going for snipe. And you go, well, I've never heard of a snipe. But, and they, they play it up and they play it up. And after dinner, it gets dark. And they lead you out. Shh. This is snipe territory. We don't want any of you to die. So you walk in single file. Snipe, where's the snipe, where's the snipe? You do everything the leaders tell you to do because you're living in fear of the snipe. You're going to catch a snipe. And you get back at the end and you realize it was all a joke on you, right? There's no such thing as a snipe, okay? Anyone ever invites you to go on a snipe hunt? Say, no, I'll stay and eat desserts while you go on your snipe hunt. Well, you know, this is the, the idea that's taught by many about what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us all these terrible things, but <laughs> isn't it good? We don't have to worry about it. <laughs> it's, in the end, it's a snipe hunt. It happened in 70 AD. It's all over. Or you're going to be pulled out of here. 
You're going to be saved. You won't have to face this. And so the question is, who is Jesus speaking to here? You know? Who is he speaking to? Honestly, this is a really vital question. Because the seriousness with which we take these warnings is the seriousness with which we'll enact the secondary warnings that will obey him in the ways that he commands in light of these dark things, this dozen things that, are, that, that sound awful and are. And so I, I want to say to you that you will hear people say, oh, we're going to be pulled out. We're going to be raptured. We're going to go up on high and we won't have to face these things. There will be a few people who become Christians in those years and they're going to have hard times, but you won't because you already know. Bogus, bogus, bogus. It's a snipe hunt. If that's the truth, then Jesus is warning people of nothing. I mean, these warnings apply to no one except the people who aren't his followers, right? It boggles the mind that people can say that these things are not realities that Christians will face. They will betray you. They will kill you for my name. They are going to do things to you because you belong to Christ. And we say, but thank goodness the rapture comes and you're gone. It is, it is pure, non-biblical snipe hunt. But there is another view of these that's equally troubling. And that's the view that says, oh, yes, these were warnings. These were dangers. But most of them, in fact, the vast majority, all these verses, they'd say, the preterists, all these things, they took place when Jerusalem fell. Now, I want to say a few things to you about that argument. And the question I'd ask you is, is Jesus warning his disciples and their followers here, or is he warning the Jews? In your own mind, ask yourself, is this a warning to the Jews who've rejected Jesus, or is this a warning to the followers of Jesus? And it's a pretty easy question to answer because Jesus says, you're going to be hated because of my name, right? So very obviously, this is not a warning to the Jews. Why do I make this point? Because by 70 AD, the church had fled Jerusalem. It wasn't there. The apostles weren't there. They had gone. They were all over the world, here and there and yon, but they weren't in Jerusalem. The best of our knowledge, only one disciple, I think it was Matthias, one apostle, was left in Jerusalem at the fall of Jerusalem. If he was warning the Christians, they left. We are told that in the book of Acts that the Christians fled the persecution that came not by the Romans, but by the Jews. These events, these events occurred, and there is a warning here that there will be these things in their lifetimes, but they didn't occur to the church in Jerusalem. And they weren't tied to the fall of the temple. And if we want to say that they were and that there these persecutions and tribulations are in large part over, as the preterists say, and some of you are enamored of this view, if we want to say that, then we're stuck with... Um, with certain inconsistencies in the warnings of Christ, at least. Because if we say that the worst things that could happen, all these really terrible warnings, all took place in the 35, 36, 37, something like that years between the death of Christ and his resurrection and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, 
Well, then, what do his disciples make of the persecutions that took place after that period? Okay, Nero did persecute Christians, and it was within that period of years. There was a persecution, but I'm telling you, by far the worst persecutions came later. Under Domitian in 80 to 90 something, 84 to 95, the persecution was far worse than Nero. And then under Diocletian, who reigned from like 285 to 304, the, the most systematic killing of Christians, eradication of Christians in all the history of Rome took place. These things, they didn't get fulfilled in the church in 70 AD. They were ahead at 70 AD and they remain in, in many ways ahead then. I'm telling you when Jesus says many false prophets will arise, people claiming to be I am the Christ and deceiving many, you know what happened after Jesus came as the Messiah, as the Christ, which is what Messiah means? You know what happened to, Jeru to Judaism? Judaism had been racked by people like Thutis, who Gamaliel refers to in Acts. Remember there was Thutis who claimed he was the Christ and, and he was killed and no one followed him and he named someone else and he says, you know, these guys fell away. There were many false messiahs prior to Christ. What happened after Christ? No one. Oh, they say uh, Simon Bar something in hundreds AD. No one, no one. Why? Because the glory of Christ and his fulfillment of prophecy and the works and miracles that accompanied his life were so transcendently powerful and glorious that it kind of put a damper on the false Messiah market. There weren't many people claiming, and Judaism went away from believing in a Messiah who was divine. They just said, look, if we're going to say that this Messiah was divine, and then we're, we're anointing Jesus the Messiah, and because we will not have Jesus, we're not going to. And so Judaism today lives in the rejection of any Messiah. Some Orthodox sects still posit the possibility that a messiah will come but false messiahs who have deceived many and led many away from the faith false christ they have not arisen they have not been seen this is future i could go through these things that that are spoken of here, these 12 things, and, and show you how many of them really didn't take place, how many of the th things lie ahead, how many of the things could not have been warnings by Jesus to his disciples because they, they weren't in Jerusalem if you want to tie it. So, whether you go to the preterist camp, which says these things all took place, or to the rapture camp, which say we'll be out of here when they do take place, these arguments are, they're, they're awful. They're awful, because if there's one thing Jesus is doing in, in this chapter, it's repeating what he said throughout his ministry, that your life is going to be death, that you are to carry your cross if, if you follow him. 
that he who would live must die. And Jesus is not going back on that in these verses. He is not telling you, oh, not really. He's driving it home. It will be hard. It will be hard. Jesus is not a leader who calls his followers to to snipe hunts. He doesn't make his disciples into cowards and, and sissies by telling them, it's going to be so bad, and then not having it be bad. He said it's going to be hard. He said it his whole life. He said it would be painful. He said it would be death. And when we come to passages like this, if we turn this passage inside out and don't listen to it, we are calling Jesus a snipe hunter. Now, Jesus speaks in these passages, in these verses, and he warns. He warns first within the larger context of suffering. He says in verses 4 and 5, See to it that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. He says, don't be deceived by those who come claiming to be the Christ. Not something that took place in the first century. Not something that took place in the second century, the third or the fourth. We could go all the way. It has not taken place in the way Jesus says it will. There are false teachers. There are false prophets. These have existed all throughout history. But to claim, I am the Christ, is a step too far. Only madmen claim that. Only crazies say, I'm the Christ, in our experience. And those who are crazy enough to claim, I am the Christ, generally attract very few followers. But we need to be aware that the day is coming when there will be a power, a form of religious authority granted to creatures of Satan that will cause even the elect to wonder. We're going to see this later in the chapter. We see it throughout the book of Revelation. There will be a beast who receives a fatal wound in Revelation, but comes back from the dead and people worship him. This will happen. This is not past. 
This is future. It will appear as though the power of God is at work. We don't know how, but we know that at many times in the history of the world, Satan has been allowed to operate by God with a power that would deceive and does deceive even those who know God personally. Eve went after Satan who came in the guise of a serpent. He tossed the words of God at her. He spoke to her and she said, Satan is often given power in the Bible that we would think he should not be given. But it is of God. And how are we going to recognize the false messiahs when they come? How will we know? Well, the test of the messiahs is no different than the test of the teachers and the prophets. The distinguishing mark of Jesus' life and ministry. The one thing that sets him apart from every other prophet and teacher is that Jesus believed the word of God and taught it perfectly and he lived it. This is how you will recognize the false teacher, the false prophet, and eventually perhaps one day the false Messiah. They will not obey the word of God. They will not teach the word of God they will not live under the word of God in the way that Jesus did you know that Jesus life if you want to look up an interesting thing someday go to your Bible app and look up fulfill look especially in John and see how many times Jesus said this must happen in order to fulfill the word of God Every act he took was an act of fulfillment of the word of God. Even on the cross as he's dying, Jesus is consciously and actively fulfilling the word of God. And we're told that. We're told that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished as he was on the cross, to fulfill scripture said, I am thirsty a jar full of sour wine was standing there so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it's finished the last prophecy fulfilled it's finished he did it to fulfill scripture and I say to you when you follow teachers who proclaim themselves teachers of God's truth and they deviate from the word of God in action without repentance because I sin, every preacher sins, but without repentance, without admitting to his congregation that he is a sinful man, not just in theory, but in act. If you ever have a pastor who says he's never looked at pornography, go to another church because every pastor has done it. If you ever have a pastor who says, I'm impeccable, I don't sin in the ways you sin, go to another church. What you want is pastors who have a conscience. Teachers, prophets, messiahs who are under the word of God and not dispensing with it. 
This is why when you go to a church where the pastor says, I'm willing to have women elders, you need to run. The word of God says this is not to be. You can't get around the word of God. Jesus didn't go around it ever, even to the point of taking wine on the cross to fulfill all scripture. Jesus is speaking and he speaks to his enemies and he says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you have a pastor who says, oh, that was Moses. Oh, that teaching on sexuality, that teaching about homosexuality, these things, they're the past. Then Jesus says to you, ah, you don't believe Moses? And thus, therefore, you cannot believe in me because Moses taught me. The word of God is the test of the Messiah, of the prophet, of the teacher, of the pastor. If they don't live it and proclaim it, then run from them because you're in danger of being deceived. There is a second thing that Jesus warns and it's found in verse six. Verse six, Jesus says to his disciples, in the midst of all these dozen things, he says, verse six, it's just, it's maybe, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy what he says. He says, you will be hearing, <clears throat> he probably didn't use that tone of voice, but I want to use that tone of voice. Many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many. You We'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. <laughs> of course, that see that you're not frightened extends to what he says after that too. All these things are the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and it will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. See that you're not frightened. You're going to be killed. See that you're not frightened. <laughs> Are you frightened? Well, in one sense, it would do well for all of us to be somewhat frightened. But what are you frightened of? Death or betraying Jesus? Being killed or denying your Lord? Which is the greater fear in you? Great, great leaders who call men to great, great things never diminish the cost or the price. And Jesus does not diminish the cost or the price. I've learned when a doctor looks me in the eye and says, this is going, especially nurses, you nurses, okay? When they say, oh, this won't hurt or this will be easy, I go, okay, here's a liar. <laughs> I'm sorry, doctors and nurses and PAs and everyone, but it's just the truth. When they say, this is easy, I go, okay, all right, I know what's ahead. I remember back 25 years ago, 26, 27 years ago, going to Cleveland Clinic to be taught how to inject myself with interferon to get rid of the hepatitis C, which the interferon did not get rid of, the chronic hep C that I had back then. The nurse who was appointed to to teach me how to give myself the injections um, 
she taught me how to do it. And I said, so is this going to be, ah, I said, is it going to be hard? You know, what's it going to be? Ah, it's easy. It's easy. Uh, oh, okay. So I, I went back home. I started giving myself the injections. I would go into the office. I'd be sitting there back then with Gary opposite, and I'd be sitting at my desk, and I'd start crying. I'd go, whoa, what's this? <laughs> yeah. I don't cry. Now that I get older and my testosterone's lower, crying comes more easily. Back then, crying did not come easily, but I cried. I'd sit there and i think, I'm losing my mind. Started reading the contraindications on the little pamphlet that came with the medicine. They said depression and all these things. Yeah, I, I, I thought, whoa. So at some point, they changed the packaging of the medication. And it went from being something that you mixed a diluent with a powder, you know, uh, where you pull out the, the, the fluid and inject it in the power, powder and then pull it back out and give it to yourself to being a premixed little thing which came in a big syringe. And, uh, uh, and so I noticed that the syringe was full enough that it gave about 50% more than what it seemed like the last syringe had given. But it was a different size syringe. So I started trying to get every last little bit of it in, you know. I thought, I thought, if this is going to work, I'm going to take all my medicine. You know, I, and, uh, and my life went to pieces. I'm telling you, I was falling apart. I thought, whoa, this is a fresh batch of, of uh, what was the medicine again? Interferon. This is a fresh batch. It's more powerful because I'm breaking out in itches. I'm just, I'm sitting, I'm a mess. Life is terrible. So I call the woman, she calls me every week to ask how I'm doing. And I said, well, you know, it's hard. I think that's either a fresh batch or you're not supposed to take the full syringe. She said, oh no, take the full syringe. Absolutely, you're to take it all. So I said, all right, okay. I said, you know, I think it's more. I mean, it may not be more powder, but it's at least more liquid than the old form. She said, no, take every bit of it. So I'm taking 1.5 versus one of this. And... Uh, I get a call two weeks later from this woman and she's very apologetic. It's her next checkup. She says, you were right, I was wrong. She said, um, I had patients all over the state of Ohio whose lives fell apart. She said, one guy is in the ninth month of interferon and suddenly he couldn't get out of bed for the last month. He didn't know what hit him. And uh, I thought to myself, this is what happens when the people who are calling you to something really don't know what it is to go through it themselves and don't want to hear your complaints about it. You understand? This is why doctors say it won't hurt because they haven't gone through it and they really don't like your complaining and they don't feel real sympathetic to you. Is that true? You know, it's just true. They don't want to have to deal with your complaints and say, ah, every man takes this just fine. Are you a man, David? I go, Okay, I'm a man. I, I, I'm not going to complain. I'll let some sissy somewhere complain, but I'm not going to complain. This is not Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered everything that he calls you to. He suffers it, and he calls you to it, telling you it will be painful. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And why can't? How can you avoid fear? 
They're coming for you. They're going to take you to the Colosseum. They're going to they're going to strip you and they're going to tie you and they're going to let the lions eat you. How can you not be afraid? Well, you have a great Lord and Master who walks with you and who is by your side. One of the, one of the greatest passages in the New Testament for those who suffer is the story of Stephen as he's being stoned, looking up into heaven, seeing the heavens opened, and what does he see? He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus standing, not seated. The Bible tells us he's seated. But he's standing to welcome his faithful servant. You read the books. You read persecution in the early church by workmen. There's a chapter at the end that talks about the experience of the martyrs. It's mind-boggling. Perpetua, 20-year-old with a baby who's a Christian. It comes out that she's a Christian. The judge says, sacrifice to the emperor. And you can go free. You can, she had a little baby. You can continue to mother your baby. She says, I will not. Her father comes and pleads in the court saying, Perpetua, have pity on your son, on me, my gray hairs, but most of all on your child here. Have pity. Perpetua says, I can't turn away from my savior. They put her in prison. They leave her there for some weeks before the, the, the appointed time of the execution, hoping that she will in prison repent and be like most people. But in prison, she has a series of visions in the night of Christ, of martyrs who died before her that she knew. And she comes out and goes into the arena with absolute confidence before the tens of thousands and lives for Jesus. Jesus is with you when you suffer. Do not be afraid. He will be at your side. Finally, the, the, the most important warning of all, at the end, verse 10, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Jesus is saying here, don't grow cold. You will be tempted by your disillusionment at the advance of sin, at the unlawfulness that you see around you on every side as the end comes, you will be tempted to become disillusioned. You will become, if you're not careful, discouraged. You will say, where is Christ? Where is this coming? Look, the church is not winning. The gospel is not prospering and you will be tempted to be disillusioned, disheartened, and discouraged. And that is death. That disheartenment, that discouragement begins to sap you of your faith. This is going on in our day. 
we left our previous denomination because of their, their de- departure from the truth of God's word over the nature of the new birth. Can a great sinner be saved with a great salvation that causes him or her to leave their sin behind? The Bible makes it clear we can. But discouragement in that denomination has led many people to say, well, maybe it happens another way. Maybe there's another path besides that hard and glorious path of repentance and new life in Jesus. Maybe we can define repentance and new life in a way that makes it more accessible. And they've become disillusioned by lawlessness. They have lost heart in the face of rampant sin. So how do you keep from losing heart? Well, I, I must say a few things about this. Remember what God did in your life when you first fell in love with him. Do you remember that day? That day that you said, Jesus is real? My sins are forgiven? You remember the glories of that day? That first love when you said... You remember the day when you first fell in love with your wife, guys? When you first saw her and you said, oh, you know? But it was even better when you first came to know Jesus. It was incredible to know Jesus, to know that God loved you, to know that your sins were forgiven. Don't forget the power of the new birth. Don't diminish that power. Don't Go away from the glory of that day. Keep that love alive, alive. Love God. Wake up in the morning and say, God, I love you. I love you. Be with me this day. Profess your love to God. Sing your songs as though God is in your midst. Praise God. Love him. All right? Don't get so upset at sin that you lose sight of the Savior. This is happening all over in the United States today. uh, Much of the church thinks that Donald Trump is the savior because they're so angry at sin. They're so angry and disillusioned by sin that they're willing to worship at the altar of politics and a political savior. We don't need Donald Trump. We need Jesus Christ. We need the power of Jesus Christ. Don't think that because you're standing against sin that you're knowing the power of Jesus. Some of the most faithless people I know are the greatest nags in the world against sin. You know, the people, oh, don't do this, don't do that. The people who think their righteousness is is bound up in their opposition to sin. And thus anything they do, any negative attitudes, any rebellions against authority are justified because after all, I'm against this sin. Don't lose sight of Jesus Christ. I I close with two things that I think are vital if you are not going to be disillusioned and discouraged. First, the Bible constantly calls, Jesus constantly calls his people his disciples, his followers, to be separate from the world, that they are going to have to separate from those who do not follow him, even if it's family. Separate, separate. He says, now, I'm not telling you to leave the world, but to separate from those who call themselves Christians and behave in worldly ways, all right? So, 
in your home and in the church, in your home, do not let the world set the conversation. If that means throwing out your kids' iPads and their phones so that they do not live in the, the cesspool conversations of Instagram and, and Snapchat and these things, do it. Get rid of the world in your home. Don't let the sin come in because as it comes in, it will disillusion your kids and you and you will become a follower of the world rather than of Jesus Christ. Separate yourself. Stop listening to the news shows that make you think, oh, it's all terrible. Jesus is coming back. We need to remember that Jesus is coming back in victory, all right? And Fox News doesn't teach that. Then as well, after we work on purifying our home. There are certain kids in the neighborhood your kids shouldn't be with. There are certain toys they shouldn't have. There are certain things they should not be listening to. And I'm not saying they can't listen to any rock or anything like that. I'm just saying, have a, an eye for the influence and what's driving your kids. And the things that make them part of the world, get rid of. Now, you may wonder, David, why aren't you saying get rid of all rock? It's like saying get rid of all alcohol. The answer is to control it. There are certain things that your kids can't control. They can't control themselves when it comes to Instagram. Which one of you has a kid who's perfectly in control and yet has Instagram? I'm asking you. Is there anyone who'd say my kids are in perfect control of their appetites and their desires, their conversations on Snapchat? It's obvious, isn't it? Get rid of these things. But then as well, remember that the church is to be a place where Christ is worshipped. And it is important that in the church there be holiness. Which means that the church is going to challenge us, and I say us, including myself, when we sin. And the church has the duty, if we will not repent of our sin, to demonstrate the power of Christ by disciplining us in the hope that we will be saved by that discipline and not come under the wrath of Christ, the judge eternal. Discipline in the church is fundamental and must be exercised for the good of the sinner and of the flock. We have no right to let the church become a breeding ground for the world. It is a betrayal of Jesus Christ. And if you think church discipline is too hard, and the casting of someone out, or the threatening of of the elders against someone for their sin is negative, well, then you just haven't seen it done and you haven't done it yourself. The very first thing that made me, my first church, want to fire me was when a woman who was in the church wanted to leave her husband. You know, he was a, he was a bum, but she married him freely and I did the wedding and I warned her that I thought he was a bum. She wanted to leave him. A few years in, she was tired of this guy. She was in her 60s. She taught child after child in that church in Sunday school. A great, dear lady. I went to the elders and I said, you know, we love this lady. We have benefited from her, but we can't stand by as she divorces Wayne. It is wrong. She entered into that marriage freely, 
And the Bible says that you are not free just to throw your marriage away because you don't like the person now. Well, I, I know that people sought to have me fired. There was an, a major insurrection within the church, but God did something incredible. He led a man in the church who was in some ways the biggest rebel in the church, but oftentimes rebels like this man are honest men as well. He led that man in the midst of a board meeting where the church showed up to condemn me for wanting to deal with Sylvia. He led that man alone in the church, but he was a significant man to say, David's right. David, you and I, we'll go and we'll talk to her. And that bought me a few days, you know. The church was angry. But that night after the meeting, he and I went to this lady's house and we said to her, we love you. We appreciate your care for our children. We know that you have obeyed God. We've seen you do it. But at this point in your life, in your 70s, you're about to turn away and say you don't trust Jesus. Will you not reconsider this divorce? And you know what that great godly woman did? She looked at us. She said, you're right. It would be wrong. And she said, I'm not going to do it. And my job was saved. Uh, maybe it would have been better if I'd been fired. <laughs> but she saved my job, and so did that man who said, we are going to honor God. Look, God is real. Hell is real. Judgment is real. Jesus and his grace and his glory are real. We're not play acting. We're not on a snipe hunt here. We're dealing with real risks, real dangers, real outcomes, real eternity. And it's worth everything you have to gain. Every suffering, every drop of blood that, that God may require of you, every betrayal, everything you may give, it's worth the gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for forgiving me. Continue to forgive me, Father. Continue to make my sin clear to me. Father, forgive me. And, and Father, forgive this church. Forgive this flock of yours. Keep us from disillusionment. Keep us from fear, Father. Make us bold for the cause of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.